0: The latter part of the second century, there was a group of people known as Montanists. Not Montanaists, okay? But Montanists. M O N T A N I S T T S. Montanists. And Montanists were considered to be what we today would call a cult. Montanists were eventually found to be judged and condemned by the church. Eventually, Christians, who would be considered Bible-believing, faithful, maybe you you, you would use the word orthodox, concluded that Montanists were not real, they weren't welcome, um, they were kicked out. That's not biblical Christianity, Montanism. What do you suppose they did? What do you suppose, first and foremost, got them to be removed from biblical Christianity? What, what was so bad about what the Montanists were about? Well, they believed different kinds of things, but where it all started, and the primary reason why Montanists were considered by Christians, Bible-believing Christians, to be outside of biblical Christianity was the fact that Montanists believed in ongoing personal revelation. And so they were written off as outside of Christianity. Fascinating. In our terms, Montanists, modern-day Montanists, would be people who say God told me that's modern day montanism claims for new revelation maybe you think that's extreme maybe you think the early church was wrong but interestingly enough that's what we have historically the montanists were not considered bible believing biblical christians normal christians they were abnormal they were a cult group And they shouldn't be part of ordinary Christianity. History is relevant. (laughs) History is relevant because so many Christian books and so many Christian examples and so many of our Christian friends say things like God told me. It's a claim of new revelation. The old title for that was Montanism. Interestingly enough, so this morning I would like to warn against, hopefully steer you against, um, being a montanist. Not to pick on you or be mean or scold or anything like that, but because we were studying Jude and we were talking about the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith it's final, it doesn't need improvement, it doesn't need new revelation, for alteration. Uh, out of that, and out of some really good questions that some of you asked me, and some really good feedback, um, questions I really appreciated and could provide clarity uh, with, I, I want to talk about this this morning. Um, six reasons not to say God told me. Okay, six reasons to not say God told me. And if you don't listen to any of my other reasons, let me just say that God told me to tell you to stop saying God told me. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. Throughout the series in Jude, I made reference multiple times about the God-told-me thing, and that's what brought the questions, and I was super thankful for the questions. And so that provides a little bit of the context. So we're going to look at different passages uh, this morning, and hopefully you'll hang in there uh, if I've already stepped on your toes, Um, but at least to kind of put things in in order, we'll look at different passages, uh, hopefully just encouraging you to not be a modern-day Montanist. How many times have I said "mountains" so far, boys? 18? Seriously. 14. Well, we're going to have a church split, and it's going to be led by my family uh, of of little boys. Anybody else know? Anybody else play that game with their kids? Okay, or their spouse? (laughs) Number one, don't say God told me because the Bible is sufficient revelation. Don't say God told me because the Bible is sufficient revelation. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is the hallmark keystone text when it comes to this. Unfortunately, we're so familiar with it, we we don't even pay attention to it sometimes. But let's go ahead and pay attention to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where the Bible claims to be sufficient revelation, that we don't need more revelation, that it's sufficient revelation. And let's go ahead and look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's where we get our, our concept of inspiration. Um, it comes from the mouth of God. Literally, it's one, two two words put together, God and breathed out. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture has its origin from God, breathed out by God. And then it says, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And... and what the Apostle Paul's doing is he's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, he he gives them, or he gives him uh, those four descriptors that would really be talking about the multidimensional dimensional um, sufficiency of scripture. It does all of these things. He could have given a longer list, but he says enough that what he's getting at, and we know he's getting at this based upon the context, he's talking about it's 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 multifaceted, multiple, multidimensional, it, it, it's sufficient. He's building towards saying that. Then 17 says that the man of God, official title for a preacher in this context, because Timothy's a preacher, that the man of God may be complete or sufficient or adequate, equipped for every good work. He, He uses... The, the equipment word, because it's, it's a word that would have been used even in the first century for a ship that was designed to go and help people, a rescue boat, um, like a Coast Guard kind of boat. If you, if you need to go help people who are having a problem, you've got to send a boat out to rescue them. And that boat, if it's the boat that can really do its job, is going to be the boat that's adequately equipped it's got the right ropes it's got the right flotation devices if they had those then I don't know but it's got everything it needs to go and do its job it's sufficient to be a rescue boat adequately equipped sufficiently equipped And that's the idea here for Timothy. You have everything. You've got all the tools in your toolbox to help people. You have all that you need so you can be adequately equipped for, with scripture. And he doesn't say some and he doesn't say most. He says every. It's a statement of sufficiency. The scripture, Timothy, is what you need. When it comes to revelation, words from God... You have what you need in the Scripture, he says. Now, you have to decide, do you believe that that's true or not? I would advise that you do. Christians, historically, have believed that that's true. That we don't need more because we have everything that we need. So then it makes sense when the the book goes on and in chapter four, Paul says to Timothy in the preaching kind of context and what are you going to preach? What are people going to need? What are you going to give them? He says, preach the word which is another way of saying preach the inscripturated revelation he's just using a synonym for what he's already talked about okay it's it's all you need it's what's going to help it's what's going to equip it's multidimensional multi-sided it's sufficient and so timothy preach new revelation no preach what i told you in the dream the night before no preach your feelings, or whatever it might be. No, preach the Word. Preach the inscripturated, sufficient, multidimensional Word, and that is what's going to help people. It's an awesome thing to say. In one sense, you could say, that's very limiting, that's very constrictive. Well, if you look at it that way, from a negative perspective, but if it really is sufficient and adequate... It's awesome in a great way. And you say, well, I love these limitations. But in a sense, the proof is in the, is in the pudding. I mean, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> the, the, right? the proof is in the outcome. The proof, in this case, is in the preaching. If you really and truly believe 3.16 then you will do what I'm telling you to do, Timothy, in 17. Now, we're not all pastors. We're not all preachers. But it still would be true. If you really, truly believe 3.16, you don't need new revelation. And therefore, you don't need to say, God told me. You don't need to claim new revelation, because you don't need new revelation. And this isn't the only reason, but it's one reason to not say, "God told me to not claim new revelation, because you don't need new revelation." Oh, and by the way, if you're receiving new revelation, then the old revelation needs help. It doesn't adequately equip. I remember someone who used to t- say frequently in my presence, God told me, God told me, God told me, God told me. And we had a good enough kind of relationship where I could say to this person, you know, if, if God is really telling you things, I mean, in reality, you should be the preacher. Because all I have is the Bible. And you have direct revelation from God. It's amazing. If this is really true, what, what? <laughs> here's the microphone. And this person would say, well, that's not really what I mean. And of course, that shouldn't be the case. And, and I just wanted to push the, the consistency of what the person was saying. Saying, actually, you, you should be. You, you're the have and I'm the have not. But Paul is telling Timothy, you're the have. Because you have a Bible. So I think that's the most important place to start. The inscripturated revelation is enough. We don't need more. We don't need to claim to be receiving more. And by logical deduction, when I say God told me I am maybe well-meaningly, maybe not intentionally, but I am attacking the sufficiency of Scripture is what I'm doing. And I'm being a modern-day Montanist. I understand why I might say that because the books I read say that and the people I hang out with say that. And so it's just kind of, maybe if I don't even mean I'm receiving new revelation, it's just how Christians are talking. But historically it's not how Christians have talked, how they've spoken. But today we we, we speak that way. Complementing this, and we're gonna move on in just a second, complementing the second Timothy three sixteen reality is what's happened in redemptive history. See, God has been working, God has been engaged with His world, He still is now, we'll talk about that, and He's been working, um, and, and there's been things that have been happening that are new things, significant things, all along aiming toward a climax, all along aiming toward something that would happen that would be God's final word, if you will, and it centers around, Allah Hebrews chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken in various and sundry ways, it might say, in the King James. He's a talking God. He's a revelation God, a revealing God. But then, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In these last days, this is where everything was headed. There's a reason why it would be this way. In these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son! Exclamation point! Paragraph! Conclusion! And yes, his apostles had to give explanation. And so we have the apostles' doctrine, the explanation of the events and the theological implications and all of those things. But God has done his great thing. And so it would even actually make sense to say we don't need more revelation. We're not waiting for the next great thing other than the son's return. And we all know how it works out when people have new revelation regarding his return. <laughs> Never mind the fact that the son said no one knows the time or the hour, but I do because God told me. And by the way, the Montanists, were they, they were they were into that. And It makes sense that they were into that because if God is giving you new revelation and the next thing on God's prophetic timetable is the return, why wouldn't he tell you about that if God's talking to you? Of course he would tell you about that. So we sit in our, you know, driveways in our lawn chairs, waiting. So this makes sense. Even when it comes to redemptive history. Let's move on to a second. Don't say God told me because new revelation has never been the norm. New new revelation has never been the norm even when new revelation is coming, even Old Testament or New Testament, but it's never been the norm, even when God has been giving new revelation. Let's just use one example and do this one quickly. The one example, classic example, would be Moses. Was Moses the only believer when Moses was walking the earth? You'd never conclude that. Moses wasn't the only person who made up the people of God, right? And yet, Moses is the one that God would uniquely reveal things to. If you went to Exodus chapter 3, I'm not even going to turn there because I want to go fast here. And standing and walking on holy ground, not everybody had the not all believers had the mountaintop experience. It wasn't normal It was extraordinary. Now, here's the rub, right? Because none of us want to be normal. None of us want to be ordinary. We all want to have a Moses experience. And so when Henry Blackaby, years ago, wrote his experience in God studies and urged us and told us that basically there's something wrong with us as Christians if we're not having our mountaintop Moses experiences, we were quick to believe him because I'm not ordinary. I'm extraordinary. I'm like Moses. Just think about all the people that didn't have the mountaintop experience. It didn't make them lesser believers. They didn't get gypped. In fact, there would have been countless believers that weren't like Moses. So when we take this unique historical experience and then we make it and we generalize it, that's a foul, that's malpractice. During the New Testament time, we could look at apostles and apostles had unique ministries and unique roles. Prophets had unique ministries, unique roles, sometimes really unique. So we should remember that. And then think about the people of God and God's care for them didn't mean he didn't care for them, even though they didn't have a Moses mountaintop experience. He was still Yahweh, the great God, the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God, who cared for his people as a whole and individually. It wasn't that he was lesser. Let's move on to the next one. Don't say God told me, because the Bible is more reliable than experience. The Bible is more reliable than experience. That's tough to swallow because experience seems to trump everything in my, my mindset. We're going to talk about our sinful hearts and Satan's ability to lie to us. But before we do that, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. The Bible is more reliable than experience. Second Peter is toward the very end of the Bible. If you find Revelation, you can back up to Jude, and then you can keep going. You'll get to Second Peter. I kind of want to do Second Corinthians first and do the demon thing first, but we won't do it. And just so you know, because some of you might need me to encourage you a little bit along the way, sometimes it's semantics. Because we're going to get to the fact that God is personal, He's involved, the Holy Spirit leads, the Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit guides. We're going to get to that. But notice, I didn't say, gives new revelation. Christians have historically protected that because then we're dealing with something that undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make it up, okay? We're, we're not giving you fanciful tales. We're not giving you mythology. We're not giving you human socially constructed religious things, no. But we were eyewitnesses, okay, real experience, eyewitnesses of His majesty. Is it good that we have eyewitness accounts? Yes, it's good. It's good that we don't make things up and say, well, you know, I'm not even going to go there. Just good. good we have eyewitness accounts. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, talking about Jesus... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. We had the mountaintop experience, Right? We were there as eyewitnesses, and it's good. We want eyewitness accounts, and eyewitness accounts are valued in Scripture. All of that is significant. All of that is important. The Mount of Transfiguration. Then it says in verse 19, and we have, depending on your translation, the, the, the contrast will come out or it won't come out. And, or but, we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed. Some translations have said, we have the more sure prophetic word. What could be more sure than personal experience? And it seems that Peter is saying here, well, we have, it's more, more sure, you can count on even more so than my personal experience is inscripturated revelation. Because he's going to go on to explain what he means by the prophetic word and it's inscripturated revelation. Let's keep reading. To which you will do well to pay attention. If You're going to put uh, emphasis on my argument, put more emphasis on uh, my defense, put more emphasis on, on the prophetic word. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy... Oh, he is talking about the Bible. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Oh, so if it's it's a divine thing and, and watching it and carrying it through from one place to another... You can know that it's accurate. Eyewitness testimony can be accurate. But he's saying divinely guided, directed, inscripturated revelation. You can count on that. And again, this might be such a paradigm shock or shift for your mind. I'll give you a moment to catch up. <laughs> remember as well complimenting this that we might think we hear things we might think things happen to us we might think it's god we hear we might have actual experiences and we might think that it's god let's at least remember that jeremiah 17:9 says our heart is dark and deceitful and wicked and ununderstandable by us. We skew the data as fallen people. But I know in my heart that it was God. Well, your heart is a really bad evaluator. But I feel that it's true. Your feelings from your heart are a really suspect evaluator. Not that feelings aren't good, not that your heart isn't good, but because of sin, it's not the ultimate a thing to be trusting I have to go hmm did this really happen or didn't it really happen what's true was that really God talking to me or by the way Second Corinthians is it the devil talking to me after all the devil is described as one who disguises himself as an angel of light he disguises himself as somebody who tells the truth. A source of seeing things. A source of revelation. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of the light. And interestingly enough, the Christians in the latter part of the 2nd century... Did not question whether or not the Montanists had an actual experience. They did not say, No, you didn't hear the voice of God. What they did was they concluded that what they heard was actually demonic. Fascinating. The Bible is more reliable than experience. Let's go to a fourth reason to not say God told me. Number four conviction, burdening, or leading is not the same as telling. conviction or convicting burden or burdening or leading or being led is not the same as telling this is where for some of you and for some of us it's a a wording thing and you're going to feel less attacked by me because I'm not trying to attack you well maybe some of you kidding, totally kidding some of it's just the way we talk, is what I'm saying. And in personal conversation with some of you, it's just been helpful to, to, to dialogue about this. I'm still going to encourage you to not say, God told me. Because again, that's just not how Christians have spoken about this, because that's, that's a claim to new revelation. If you mean God is leading you, God is convicting you, God is guiding you, pastorally, and as a novice historian, wannabe, I'm just saying, don't don't, don't say God told you. It doesn't fit in with Christianity. It doesn't match with the sufficiency of Scripture. Just say God led you. I'm going to even be more careful because of what Satan does. I'm going to say, I think God led me. (laughs) It seems that God is leading me. Maybe in hindsight, I conclude that God led me. (laughs) But there's a a certain care. Because we we are not deists. We we don't think that God wound up, created the world, wound up the world, and walked away. No, Christians believe that God is involved and and He's personal and He's caring to the point where even the the hairs on our heads are numbered. He's that personal. Like Jesus would talk about, Not not even a A sparrow falls from the sky apart from God's sovereign control and He's using that to encourage us. That's how much God cares about us personally. He does lead. He does guide. He does convict. Absolutely He does those things. But that's different than claiming new revelation. He's involved. He's personal. The Holy Spirit does things like John 16 verse 13 Leading or guiding. John 16, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you. Or some of your translations might say lead you. The Spirit leads. The Spirit guides into all the truth. So we we need to know that. He leads us and He guides us. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he's leaving and saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans because you're all going to get new revelation and God's going to talk to you anyway. No, the the assumption is I'm leaving and people are going to be like panic-stricken. Oh, no, 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 don't be panic-stricken. I'm going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. This is wonderful. John 16, 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Oh, he, he brings conviction. Okay. That's another thing he does. We can look at John chapter 3. He regenerates. We can look at illumination passages where he turns the lights on, so to speak. Galatians chapter 5. He bears fruit. And he's not talking about corporately, he's talking about individually. God is involved, God is engaged. He changes lives, causes us to be born again. Ephesians chapter 5, he fills us or controls us. And do not, 518, and do not get drunk with wine. That would cause us to act unnaturally. For that is debauchery, but be filled. This is unnatural as well. Be filled or be controlled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always uh, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit. That's personal. The cross reference in Colossians ties it to Scripture. So, It's semantics, but I think the semantics are important. And so, at least work on saying it differently. (laughs) As you express God's personal moving in your life. I would just encourage you to be careful and, and say the right kinds of things. you probably mean right things. Just say it the right way. Number five. We've already gotten to this. So we can do it quickly, I think. Don't say God told me because it has a shady history. <laughs> don't say God told me because it has a shady history. I don't have any passage to give you from the Bible in this case. Perhaps I could, but I don't. We've already talked about Montanism. We could talk about Mormonism. New revelation. Starting a new religion. Because normal Christians aren't doing it right. And that's a lot of times where new revelation claims come from normal Christians aren't doing it right, so I had God speak to me so I could do it right. Seventh-day Adventism, Christian science, on and on the list could go. Modern cults establish themselves because they claim new revelation. Because something more is needed for genuineness. It's this quest for something more. Sarah Young, in her massively best-selling book in our day, Jesus Calling, sounds like Joseph Smith. And I quote, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I longed for more. The Bible is good, but I have to have more. Sounds like a cult leader. If you know anything about Christian history, it does. But we don't know very much about Christian history. We don't know very much about what the Bible claims about itself. And so we just gobble up her books. we ought not gobble up our books. It pained me last night to listen to it on audio book so I could write down that quotation. I just thought this is terrible. But I know I'm gonna sound like the mean guy for saying it. I'm appealing to you based upon the Bible's claim for sufficiency. And I'm appealing to you based upon Christian history that when someone says, Yeah, I know the Bible is good, but I need something else, it doesn't jive. There's a huge problem. Sincere? Maybe. Heaven is for real would be another one. So I've been mean to a woman, now I'm going to be mean to a child. <laughs> <laughs> Thus, none of my arguments are any good. Um, claim of new revelation is what it is. So many times by Christians who've been thoughtful, Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled. So many times throughout history where that had been the case, that person would be so written off so fast, it's not even funny. Holding the parents accountable for what they've had their son supposedly say. Never mind the fact, you wouldn't even have to read it. But then when you read it and found out that the description that there is there of God the Father is one that's basically essentially the same as Mormonism's, So you'd go, it's doubly bad. It's bad to make the claim, period. But then when you go on to articulate things that are patently untrue biblically, you for sure would say the book is bad. But you wouldn't even have to crack the book. As soon as you just heard the claim, you'd go, that's Montanism. That's not Christian. That's cultic. And we're like, oh, it's awesome. You know, I really am not having much success in my Christian life. I'm not growing, I'm not motivated. My life is kind of in a bad place. I need something more. So I'm gonna read this book. So maybe I can have that kind of experience. It's trouble. We have the more sure word. All scripture's inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Wow. And God leads and convicts and guides and, and all this through the power of the Spirit, the Spirit who wrote the Bible. Wonderful. Wonderful. Finally, number six. Don't say God told me because it's divisive. It's divisive. In the book of Jude, you get this emphasis on the once and for all faith, the objective delivered to the saints' faith is unifying, it brings you together. Uh, in in the early chapters in the book of Acts even by the way what brought them together would have been and there's even a unique transition time where there's new revelation happening (laughs) what brought them together the apostles doctrine We can get together and it's objective and it tells us the meaning and the significance and that's what caused them to come together and then they would come together and pray and fellowship and break bread and and experience this amazing unity because what unifies them is this objective reality of the apostles' doctrine. Like in Jude, the faith. And then, in contrast, if I say God told me now I've got people who might believe me and now I've got my little group. And then you say God told you and now you've got your little group. And you say God told you and now you've got your little group. And now there's all kind of splintering going on and you've got this ism and that ism and that ism because it's new revelation that's undermining the ultimate finished revelation. So I sound divisive today because I'm being critical. But what's going to end up uniting us if the faith doesn't unite us? The once and for all delivered faith. Nothing's going to unite us. Nothing is. So what sounds divisive, I'm going to suggest to you, is actually an attempt to bring unity to that which is not going to change. Next week we don't have to knee-jerk and have another new revelation. We can be united in this. Jesus, in his high high priestly prayer, talks about the truth and the truth being what unites the truth about the gospel. Maybe some final questions. Could God give new revelation? God can do anything he wants to do. God can do anything he wants to do. But I know the God of revelation has told us that his written revelation that we possess is sufficient. Can God contradict himself? Well, I don't think so. So I want to be careful and God can God is a speaking God. <laughs> The God of Revelation. But it wouldn't be normal. Why is God told me so popular? I'm going to say it's because of bad teaching, I'm going to say it's because of authority trips. Because of a constant quest for something more, this is what God says, and as old as as the garden, the question is, has God said? It's also popular because you know what? I I like magic bullets. and we're all drawn to magic bullets because life in this world is filled with trouble, right? Jesus said it's going to be filled with trouble. And there's death and there's suffering and there's parenting. Not that those are the same as death and suffering. Right? We would reserve that only for (laughs) in-laws. Right, family issues, family conflicts, church conflicts, personal conflicts, our own emotional isms and issues, societal, cultural. I mean, there's so many broken things in our world. And I would really like to just have a a way to fix them. God told me, here's what to do. That's pretty easy. Done. Done. I'd like to control other people too because you know what? Some people need to be controlled. I could just say, well, God told me. It would solve a lot of issues in my little world if I could play like God. But we have to remember the Bible talks about this suffering and this struggle and this difficulty as part of our lot. Okay? And it's not going to be removed until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so the easy quick fix magic bullet or rub on the genie bottle and we've got something new, extraordinary. No one has ever had this before, but it's going to solve your problems. It's snake oil. Snake oil. We have to remember, okay, I've got to meditate on the word. I've got to hide the word in my heart. I have to, and it's work to do that so structure my thinking and my mind and my life to the best of my ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow God's written revelation? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to Your Word, as the psalmist says. Well, that's hard. That's difficult. That's going to involve effort. But that's what God has given to us. He's given us The bread of life, if you will, keeps us dependent upon Him. And so let me encourage you by pointing out the obvious there are no magic bullets. And until Christ returns, the living Word, the ultimate revelation, it's going to be hard. And all we have are our Bibles, and the Holy Spirit, and other believers. And the church, the more sure word, be encouraged, be careful, be thankful, be Christian-like. Don't be a Montanist. Don't sound like a Montanist and love your neighbor enough to try to help them think through the issues. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a good corrective from your word. Help us to learn, to grow, to be thankful for what we have. Help us to see your word the way we should see it, what sustains us, uh, more valuable than bread even for our spiritual life. And thank you that you have given your Holy Spirit, that you've, you've caused us to be born again and you've given us your spirit to lead us and to teach us and to guide us with open Bibles. May we sound like Christians in the way we talk. And may we do so for the glory of Christ and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.